This morning I had hoped to continue our studies in the Revelation and take up the next church would be the church in Pergamos or Pergamum as some of your translations title it. However, in light of the fact that this Lord's Day, it is our privilege and great opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table, I decided to uh, go to another passage of scripture, which I hope will be to our benefit. So let me call your attention this morning to the word of God as it's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We begin our reading at verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are sound mind or other sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. And if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or reckoning their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the word of God. My wife and I were walking the other morning, and we were discussing how my preaching has changed over the years. As a teen, I would take into the pulpit my Bible and a couple of three-by-five index cards. I'd read a verse of the Bible it's my text, and then announce what I hope to be my catchy subject, thus using the verse as a springboard to support my subject. 
at times not aware of the historical, cultural, or biblical context of the verse. Furthermore, I had no idea of the importance of biblical word studies so that I might ascertain the biblical writer's intent by the choice of the words that were used in the text. And even though these men were different and different personalities and different styles of writing, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, yet they used their words carefully and they, their personalities were not violated as they wrote the scriptures. But this was not a part of my preparation and study. However, since then, I've learned that there are three traditional categories of sermons. They're topical, textual, and expository. I've also had drilled into my head this axiom by my homiletics professor. That is that the proclamation, explanation, and application of scriptural truth in the power of the Holy Spirit must constitute the heart and soul of all our preaching. Pastor A.N. Martin. So in a day when there has been a great resurgence and appreciation for expository preaching, I still believe that all three kinds of sermons are or should be expository sermons. When we proclaim, explain, and apply the word of God, this makes it expository. As Pastor Martin would say, it is not preaching if it, does not, if it is not an exposition of the text of scripture. If the sermon does not open and apply the scriptures, it is not worthy to be called a sermon, no matter what kind of sermon it's supposed to be. Therefore, each kind of sermon, we must add this adjective, expository. Textual expository, topical expository, and consecutive expository. And throughout church history, God has blessed and owned each kind of sermon as his servants have spoken, as the mouthpieces of God, as, as, as the apostle says in our text, as though God were pleading through us. So you sit there and you ask, Ernest, why in the world have you taken us back to your old classroom? It's because it's not my intention to open this entire text in your hearing this morning. I just want to focus on one verse and glean some scriptural truths that I believe will help us as we come to the table of remembrance this evening. At the risk of not fitting neatly into one of these three categories, nor reverting to my preaching at 18, I trust that what we shall consider will aid us to come to the table in a worthy manner. The apostle said in 1 Corinthians 11, Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The New King James Version says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. What does Paul mean by unworthy manner? Well, 
we'll need to understand something of the context to be clear about this language. Let me read this introduction to 1 Corinthians to help us understand the context in which these words were penned. 1 Corinthians reveals the problems, pressures, and struggles of a church called out of a pagan society. Paul addresses a variety of problems in the lifestyle of the Corinthian church. Factions, lawsuits, immorality, questionable practices, abuse of the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts. From the very opening verses, just after Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, he has to say, for it has been declared or reported to me concerning you, my brethren, by the household of Chloe, that there are contentions or quarrels among you. This is not gossip. Those who came to Paul were those who were concerned about the unity of the body of Christ. And here we find in this church that these had begun to display a sectarian spirit, so much so that Paul had to ask, is Christ divided? Then in chapter 11, he addresses their conduct at the Lord's table. Turn with me, if you will. To 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The apostle writes there, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Participation in the Lord's Supper is a serious business. At least it is to God. That's what Pastor Tom Askell said in an article written in Ligonier Ministries. He went on to say this. Consequently, many church members have never been encouraged to think very deeply about the nature of this ordinance, much less about the need to make proper preparations before participating in it. It is easily dismissed as a religious ritual that can be ritualistically observed. He asks the question, and he poses this, this sad commentary. Many have not properly prepared to take the table or come to the table of remembrance. They've not thought deeply about the nature of this ordinance. 
this table is referred to as the table of the Lord. The table that belongs to the Lord. It's the same construction that we find in the Revelation when when John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the day that belongs to the Lord. We'll say more about that a little later. Pastor Askell continues by saying, we should not merely pause, but come to a full stop until we make sure we know exactly what Paul means and are certain of the pathway that avoids this serious failure. The apostle, brethren, is coming and dealing with the actions of the Corinthians, not their person, but their actions. In verse 29, Paul explains this meaning, both the sin involved and the consequences that result. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. To commune unworthily, then, is to eat and drink the elements without properly regarding what they represent and the purpose for which Christ calls us to remember his death. No preparation for the table of remembrance is carelessness. It is not fitting for us to come to the table without being duly prepared. It is not correct to come to the table of remembrance without preparation. The very fact that Jesus instituted this practice for his disciples is an indictment on our own tendency to forget the reality, necessity, and cost of our redemption. It is also a testimony to his wisdom and love in providing us with an ongoing, regular, and dramatic reminder of these saving truths. Pastor Askell calls it a, 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 a drama. A, this is a dramatic ordinance. Now, he's not talking about what some churches practice with mimes and, and skits in place of sermons. That's the way he's talking about. He's saying this table is a visible representation and speaks to us of what our Savior did. It's a drama, if you will, and it's for those of us who have recognized our lost estate and seen the great remedy for all of our sin in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gospel ordinance for unworthy folks. You can't make yourself worthy enough to come to this table. What Paul is talking about, not about our worthiness to come, if I've read my Bible consecutively and faithfully all week long and I prayed every day three times and, and I've witnessed to everyone I've seen, I think I'm worthy to come to the table. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about how we come and how we discern, how we prepare our minds to understand what this table represents and what it is for us. So, beloved, in the time that remains, let me draw you back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And I'd like to glean nine of these saving truths.
30 minutes and nine headings, nine points for an old man is not possible. But let me borrow from the sacramental discourses delivered by the Dr. John Owen back in October of 1669. It was his purpose also to glean. Pastor Owen was a great topical expository pastor teacher. And it was his design to, to pluck, if you will, from this one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, nine scriptural truths that would aid the people of God who were under his care to the table that they might properly discern the Lord's body. So this morning we'll take hopefully at least three of these and this evening we'll come back to this passage and we'll look at the remaining six. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There are three things concerning God the Father in this verse. At least three things. There are three things concerning the Son. And there are three things concerning ourselves that we need to be acting faith upon in our meditation. So as we set forth these things, brethren, I trust that you will go home this afternoon and take these things and meditate on them that you might be duly prepared to come to the table of remembrance. First, God the Father. There are three things concerning God the Father. His sovereignty, his justice, and his grace. The sovereignty of God. He made him the words of our text. The justice of God, he made him to be sin. And thirdly, the grace of God, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Then secondly, this verse speaks words concerning the Son of God. His innocence, his purity, his sufferings, and his merit. His purity, his sufferings and his merit. His purity, he knew no sin. His sufferings, he was made to be sin. And his merit, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then, concerning ourselves, we see our guilt, our deliverance, and our state whereunto we are brought, which is a state of righteousness. There are at least nine truths, I say, in this verse for us to meditate on that we might properly discern the body and blood of our Lord. It's too much this morning, but this evening we hope to come back and discuss the three things concerning God the Son, his purity, his sufferings, and his merit, and then those three things that are concerned with us. Consider, first of all, the three things about God the Father. First, his sovereignty. He made him. That's what our verse says. 
I believe it's safe to say that I don't need to convince this congregation of the fact that God is sovereign. But since this is not a TED talk, let me set forth the biblical witness. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103 verse 19. According to Ephesians 1.11, God the Father works all things according to the counsel of his will. We could multiply texts, brethren, that will confirm that he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can resist his hand or say to him, what, have, what hast thou done or what doest thou? Daniel 4, 35. But does the Father rule in the realm of redemption? We may not have a problem with the fact that God rules over all things like the birds and the bees and, and, and the rising of the sun and the, and the setting of the same. But is God sovereign in the realm of grace? We used to believe that we had a part in it, that it wasn't all of grace. We acknowledge grace, but there's something we did. Maybe you've heard this before. If you're going to heaven, and uh, the devil's voting no, and God's voting yes, and we have to break the tie. Those of us who were dead in trespasses and sin. Dead men don't vote. God is sovereign, brethren, even in the realm of grace and salvation. And this we must meditate upon, and it will cause our hearts to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In his book entitled, The Sovereign God of the Sovereignty of God, the Sovereign God of Grace and Salvation, pardon me. Our brother John Roden wrote this in his book, and I quote, It is according to his good pleasure, with absolutely no reference to anything in man. If this seems unfair to you, my friend, remember that God is under no obligation to show mercy and grace to any of Adam's fallen race. He could have just permitted all of us, who are all by nature his enemies and hostile to him, to perish forever under his holy wrath. According to Exodus 33, verse 19, as he quoted above, God reserves to himself the sovereign prerogative and right to be merciful and gracious to those whom he will. And then our brother takes up Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9, where the apostle quotes the words God spoke to Moses in Exodus 33. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Owen makes this point that God the Father dispenses with the law so far that he, the Son, suffered for sin. He who knew no sin, and we who had sinned were let go free. The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. 
the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ezekiel 18.20. Owen says God dispenses with the law so far as the son suffered. He who knew no sin suffered, and those of us who had sinned were let go free. Imagine that. Don't think of that a light thing. If I may use a crude illustration, it's like going to a game, a basketball game, and it's obvious that one team is much more talented and athletic than the other. But not only by looking at the team, but when you look at the scoreboard, you see that the other, one team is getting blown out of the gym. And at the end of the, at the, end of the game, the score is unrealistic. It, it's like they've won by 60 points. And it was a championship game. And then when the trophies are passed out, the organizers of the athletic league give the trophy to the kids that were blown out. And you say, how can this be? This, this is an injustice. How can the sinless Son of God be nailed to a cross, mistreated by Roman soldiers, and have the wrath of his Holy Father dispensed on his righteous soul and those who have violated the law of God and been his enemies all their days go free? How can this be? It's because of the sovereign workings of God in the realm of grace. Some of us have sat in homes with our siblings and heard the same Bible readings, have sat in church next to our siblings, and God has been pleased to save us and not save our sisters and brothers. Some people sit in the same church, hear the same sermons, Some are saved, and some are not. And when the word of God is preached, that word is a savor of life unto life for some, but for others it's the savor of death unto death. Why? Because God is sovereign in whom he calls to himself. He is not moved upon by our actions. There is nothing in us that 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 is a magnet for God's mercy. God is sovereign. He does what he wills. It was by God's sovereign appointment that the son was put to this work. He made him, for none else could do it. He was the servant of Jehovah. The whole foundation of this great transaction lies in the sovereignty of God. That we who knew, he who knew no sin, became sin. And those of us who were violators of the holy law of God were free. Meditate on that, brethren, this afternoon. And think about the fact that God really didn't have to save me. He didn't. There's nothing in us that 
that's that attractive to God. But he saved me. Don't think lightly of that. That that in eternity past, God set his distinguishing love upon you in Christ. And in time, he called you to himself by the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel that's preached on street corners, in churches, and all on the radio, on the television. And multitudes hear the same word that you heard that God used to draw you to himself. Not only does this verse speak of the sovereignty of God, but also... His justice. He made him to be sin. What this does not mean is that Christ was made a sinner. I've heard preachers talk about the Christ of God hanging on a tree as if he were the malefactor, as if he was the guilty one. The thief on the cross understood that. He said, he has done nothing wrong. And before he was even nailed to the cross, Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Some people want to make Christ out because he was suffering for sin, that he was a sinner. That is blasphemy. Which of you convinces me of sin, our Lord says in in John chapter 8. In 1 Peter 2, he says, Peter says, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. For though he exhausted the curse of sin, remember, brethren, the wages of sin is death. He was never personally defiled by it. He was officially guilty in our guilt. He never was the object of the father's loathing or aversion, even when forsaken. He never was what the sinner inevitably is, abhorred or abominable. Because a distinction could always be made between the only begotten son, the righteous servant, and the sin-bearing substitute. Professor George Smeaton That 19th century Scottish theologian said that. But what saith the scriptures? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... We are healed. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses is everyone who hangs on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 23. This is the language of imputation. Impute, the Greek word logizomai. This word is a banking term. It simply means to put to one's account. When you deposit money in the bank, the computer or the teller takes that amount to your account. 
or to your credit. Here we read that our sin is imputed to Christ. We are the offending party. He is guiltless. He perfectly kept the law. Yet on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Christ. Why? Because our sin was imputed to Christ. Christ took upon himself our sin. Our great debt was put on his account. Christ paid the horrific penalty as the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him. Dr. Stephen Nichols. Romans 6.23, brethren, says, For the wages of sin is death. Justice demands a payment. Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Beloved, justice has been satisfied. We ought to thank God that justice has been satisfied. The debt we owe, the debt we could not pay, was paid by him who knew no sin. Listen to Dr. Sproul. But this is the wonder of the atonement that the Father accepts in our behalf the payment of a mortal debt by someone else. In fact, it's by a someone else that he himself has appointed for this task that he has sent into the world with this mission in mind. So that in the arrangement that we spoke of between the Father and the Son, the Father commissions the Son to buy back his people, to purchase their redemption, to satisfy their indebtedness. And he willingly and gladly makes the sacrifice to give that payment. And the father now has his justice satisfied and his grace satisfied so that in the work of the cross, we see the clearest example in all of scripture of God's maintaining his own righteousness his own justice, and at the very same time pouring out the riches of his grace in behalf of our, in our behalf. Christ has paid the price for us. You say, Ernest, these are old truths. These are familiar truths. Sometimes I think familiar truths are easily forgotten. And we don't meditate on them as we ought. And they don't have the due effect upon our souls. Owen said once, we all know enough to serve God better than we do. And do we really meditate on these things and prepare ourselves for the table and for godly living throughout the week? Are these scriptures doing their due in our hearts and in our lives? Not only does this verse speak of God the Father as the God of absolute sovereignty and the God of strict and unflinching justice, but it reveals his grace. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. What can we say about grace? 
Well, we can follow John Newton's lead and call it amazing. Someone has created this acrostic for grace. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Others have defined it as God's unmerited favor. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That no flesh should glory in his presence. God bestows by his sovereign grace this great mercy. This grace manifests itself in the aim and design of God in all this matter. What did God aim at? It was that we might be made righteous and free from sin. Even our trials are, are a means of grace because the Bible tells us that, that we were predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. And so we can count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations and trials because God is doing a work in our lives. He's molding us by his grace into the image of his son. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Titus 2, 11 through 14. When we meditate on these truths, when we really think about the fact that God didn't have to save me, but he did. When we think about the fact that we were ripe for judgment because we were sinners and we deserved his punishment. But he placed that punishment on another. When we think about these truths, when we think about the grace that was bestowed, it will help us as we come to the table and all our weakness and all our failures we can still come to the table and say what the Apostle Paul said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches 
is grace. Memorize that and pray that as a praise to God for his unspeakable mercy to hell-deserving sinners such as we. Meditate on that, brethren. We will come to the table this evening, and I trust that we are duly prepared, that we won't come in an unworthy manner, but that we will discern the body and blood of our Lord. As we've considered this morning, the Father in all of this work of redemption, that he sovereignly chose us and in justice he provided a sin bearer and he bestowed his grace upon us. I said we come back to this and just let me say this, brethren. This is the Lord's day. The day that belongs to the Lord. Let us prepare our hearts. And I trust that you have. This is no chastisement or, or lashing, but it's an exhortation. Because I fear, brethren, we've allowed the things that God has given us six days to do to crowd in on the day that belongs to Him. God saw fit in his sovereignty to deem it necessary to give us a whole day in his infinite wisdom. He thought it's necessary to give us a whole day to give to him. But he knows you've got to put food on the table. He knows you've got to cut the grass. He knows that uh, that dress needs mending. You name it. He knows that. And he gave us six days. Six whole days. I remember a professor always saying, God always gives us enough time in a day to do his will. And for some reason, we think, God, you didn't really give us enough time to do what we're supposed to do in the six days. But he did. And he's given us one day to push all of that paperwork and, and all the stuff that went on on the job and, 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 and the weeds that didn't get clipped on Saturday. He, he said, push all that aside. Monday's coming. And he's given us a day that we might bask in his glory, that we might hear his word preached, that our souls might be nourished. Could it be, brethren, the reason why we have so much difficulty mortifying the deeds of the flesh is because we've not duly fortified our souls and benefited from the day that God in a special way meets with his people. In his wisdom, he has given us this day. God forbid that we should allow other things that should have been done in the six days to crowd in on this day and push out. He didn't give us an hour. If he thought that's all we needed was three hours to, to really worship him and fellowship with the believers. And there are things that are, are legitimate on the Lord's day, works of mercy, 
works of kindness and piety. I understand that. And those are all things that God honors. But brother, I fear there are a lot of things that we do on this day that rob us of vitality and vigor as we journey to the celestial city. When we come to the table and the bread is passed and the wine is passed, did we just look at it as some ordinary piece of bread that's been cut up or in some Welch's grape juice? Or have we prepared our minds in such a way that as we see those elements, we're reminded of what our Savior bore and the grace he extends to us even now, unworthy as we are. And he infused, he, not, not, he, he ministers his grace to us even at the table, that we might be strong Christians that glorify him in the earth and men shall see our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. That's my exhortation and application to you and to myself that we would duly prepare ourselves for this day and for this table as we come before our gracious Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we confess to our shame that we have not loved thee as we ought. So now we plead that you will forgive us of our sins, that you would aid us by the power of your Holy Spirit, by your Holy Word. Teach us, Lord. Keep us, Lord. And instruct us in the ways of righteousness. And we shall be so very careful to give your name all the praise and all the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.